0: Well, this morning I think it would be a good thing to thank uh, Micah Demmer and the worship team for leading us. Don't you think? Let's thank him. Thanks, Micah. I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 11. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. I was in the sixth grade, not too much younger than my son Nathan. We were on our way home from a Christmas trip in the town of my birth, Billings, Montana. And we made our way west, heading back to Olympia. We made our way west through Bozeman and Butte and Missoula, a drive that could quite possibly be the most boring drive on planet Earth. And as we neared closer to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, I remember... As a young boy looking out the back of the window, it was dark now, of course, and I saw sparks flying out the back of the car, and I said to my dad, I don't think that looks very good. And so we pulled over to the side of the road, and we ended up stopping in the little town of Kellogg. Now, as a sixth grader, I thought, Kellogg couldn't be all that bad. That's where they make all the breakfast cereal, right? No dice. We learned after spending what I think was about three days there, Kellogg is quite possibly the most boring town in the United States of America. So our, our car was out of commission. We would need to wait for the parts to come in. And that meant that we would wait in a boring old motel for a number of days. I'll never forget, I believe it was the second day in Kellogg. My mom was on the phone. And I remember that things didn't appear to be right. I remember the look on her face. I'll never forget the look on her face. I remember looking over her shoulder and watching her write the words, words that I will not ever forget. Lori Baker is dead. Lori Baker was a friend of mine. She was only uh, a junior in high school And she died in a fire, we would later find out. And I remember as a young boy, a 12-year-old, the blood rushing out of my face. My heart began to race and incredible sadness overwhelmed me as I head quickly to the bathroom so I could cry. The title of the message this morning is The Shadow of Death. And death, of course, is the reality that hangs over each one of us. When we stare death in the face and experience the loss of a loved one or the loss of a friend, the weightiness of that death is oftentimes far too difficult to bear. Now the family and the friends of Sophia can certainly understand the painful effects of of death. And of course, as BJ mentioned, we offer our prayers of support and encouragement to Uh, The family members and the friends of Sophia, we send our condolences. My prayer today is as we open up the word of God, that the Holy Spirit would grant peace, that the Holy Spirit would grant encouragement and comfort as, as each one of us in this community stand in the shadow of death the reality of standing in the shadow of death is quite frankly the destiny of every pilgrim we cannot escape its grasp. one need not wonder whether or not one will ever stand in the shadow of death we need not concern ourselves with wondering if we will ever be in this ominous place for standing in the shadow of death is it's not a question of if standing in the shadow of death is a question of when and so I have three questions for you to wrestle with this morning. The first of which is, when you stand in the shadow of death, where will you turn? Second, when you stand in the shadow of death, to whom will you rely on? And then finally, when you stand in the shadow of death, in whom will you place your hope? In the story before us in John chapter 11, we will see how Mary and Martha and the friends of Lazarus fare... As they themselves stand in the shadow of death. I want to show you what Jesus offers and what he reveals as each one of us face the inevitability of standing in the shadow of death. And so, with your Bibles before you, will you stand with me as we read our passage in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus You may be seated. This morning, I want to ask this question. It's a short question. It's a very important question, and that is this. Exactly how does Jesus, how is he there for us when each of us stand in the shadow of death? Will you join me in a word of prayer? Our Father, uh, we recognize the inevitability of death. We recognize that there is no escaping uh, the horrible reality of death. We recognize that this is not a part of your uh, original plan as Adam and Eve came into the world and disobeyed. And as you promised them, if they ate of the fruit, they would surely die. And as Romans 5.12 so vividly tells us, because Adam died, so we also have come into a state where we bear the marks of original sin. And we too are destined to die. God, uh, apart from the reality of death, we thank you for the great hope that we have in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we look for a few minutes at this story, about the death of Lazarus, the one that Mary and Martha loved so much, the one who the Lord Jesus loved so much, that we would see the reality of hope, that we would see the reality and experience the reality of the gospel in clear ways, in vivid ways, as we study this story together. May you minister to your people. May you uh, spread peace and encouragement and joy, even as many of us, stand this weekend in our community in the shadow of death for it's in your son's worthy name we pray amen once exa- once again exactly how does jesus help us when we stand in the shadow of death i want you to see two very important truths that emerge from this passage this week first of all i want you to see that jesus offers hope jesus offers hope for sinners now last week We saw that Mary and Martha were at a time of crisis. They were moving to the day when they too would stand in the shadow of death for their brother Lazarus had become ill. And so they sent a messenger to alert Jesus in that northern portion of the land that we described last week. And from the time that the messenger left to find Jesus to the time that Jesus actually arrived in Bethany in the village of Lazarus, we see in our passage that four days had expired. And we learned last week that Jesus had his reasons. They were providential reasons in obedience to his father that he decided to stay for two days in that northern region. The Bible tells us that when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went quickly to meet him. And Martha said to Jesus once again, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds with amazing grace, with unbelievable kindness and mercy as he offers hope for sinners. I want you to see that hope as we unpack it in two affirmations... And two promises. The hope will arrive for Mary and Martha, in this case Martha to begin with, in two affirmations and two promises. Notice in verse 25, the first of two affirmations. And don't miss the the weightiness, the gravity of this verse of Scripture. Jesus said, affirmation number one, I am the resurrection. Now remember the state that Martha was in. Her brother was dead. Her brother was gone. He had breathed his last. She is grieving. She is moaning on the inside. She is wailing. She has obviously been weeping. And Jesus stands before her and he offers her hope in these words. He says, I am the resurrection. Now, at a very basic level, the the word resurrection here means to to raise a person from the dead to raise a person from the dead and in jesus day as you very well are aware there were some people namely the sadducees who refused to believe in the resurrection and so if there were any sadducees around and jesus were to utter this first affirmation and say i'm the resurrection if i'm a sadducee i'm saying to myself big deal that has, that has no weight in my world at all because as a Sadducee, I don't buy it. I don't believe in the resurrection. Matthew twenty two twenty three 23 says, The same day the Sadducees came to see him who say there is no resurrection. You say, how does that relate to me in this day? I've never met a Sadducee. I've never met a person who says, my worldview is the worldview of the Sadducee. Well, in our day, people continue, as the Sadducees did, to deny anything that concerns the supernatural, including the resurrection. I want you to think about this, because in one swoop, such a person cuts himself off from receiving the joy of eternal life. The skeptic, you see, may win points in the public square, and of course they do. He may receive kudos from the intellectual elite and the academic community, but such a person, at the end of the day, cuts himself off from any hope when he denies the supernatural. Every atheist denies the supernatural. And by definition, when one denies the supernatural, you deny the resurrection. Every deist denies the supernatural. And when you deny the supernatural, by definition, you deny the resurrection, thus cutting yourself off from any hope to receive peace or eternal life. Now, what's interesting about this statement that Jesus utters when he says, I Am the resurrection. We have seen Jesus make similar statements. In John chapter 6, he said in the first of the famous I am statements, I am the bread of life. In John 8, he said, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he totally freaked out the Jews. Do you remember that? When he said, before Abraham was, I am. And you recall that that little phrase, I am, in John eight fifty eight is written in the present tense, which means, and the, and the Jewish leaders knew full well what Jesus was trying to communicate here. I am means, I have always existed, I exist today, and I will exist unto all eternity. And they knew, in that short statement, that Jesus was making himself equal to God. If you're here this morning and that sounds strange to your ears, hear it once again. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, you see, does not have a beginning. Jesus is infinite. Jesus is eternal. Now, we are going to see the emotional response of Jesus as he moves closer to the tomb of his friend Lazarus here in just a few minutes. But I think there is a great need in the evangelical world for us to remember this about Jesus, that Jesus is infinite, that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus has no beginning, he has no end. As Revelation tells us, I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. We need in the evangelical world to remember and embrace the majesty of Jesus Christ. Far too many in the evangelical world have relegated Jesus to the little town of Galilee, that he was a carpenter, that he was a mere man. And we will see in a moment as he responds in three very distinctly emotional ways. Jesus not only was a man... Jesus is a man, and he will be a man unto all eternity. And that's where we get what theologians say, Christology in biblical balance. You see, there are some who say, I'm going to emphasize that Jesus is God. Then there are others who say, I'll emphasize that Jesus is man. And guess what? Those are both positions that are not balanced. We will see in future studies, especially as we learn more about church history together, that specific heresies have arisen in church history where one person or one group or one sect or one organization emphasizes the deity of Jesus to the exclusion of his humanity. We will see other heresies that arise when a group or a person or a sect or a leader emphasizes his humanity at the exclusion of his deity. Here's the reality. Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God. He is fully man. Now, he continues in John chapter 10. He says, I am the door of the sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd. And then we get to this next statement, this affirmation, a wonderful affirmation in John chapter 11 verse 25 where he says to Martha, I am the resurrection. Now, while Martha was banking her hope in the final resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, which I believe in itself was an act of faith, what she is saying is what I would call orthodox. What she is participating in here is what I would call good theology. Because she says to Jesus, I know at the end of the day, I know when the final chapter is turned that he will rise again. Jesus makes sure now that she understands who exactly it is who stands before her. When he says, I am the resurrection. One writer says it this way, Jesus seeks to shift Martha's focus from an abstract belief in the resurrection on the last day to personal trust in the one who provides it for her in the here and now. What are the implications of this Unbelievable affirmation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see that when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, we see that Jesus is sovereign over death. For many of us who stand even this day in the shadow of death, and you know, as I have shared with you, that in recent days I too have stood and wept in the shadow of death as my friend went to be with the Lord not too many days ago. But I remember that Jesus is sovereign over death. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection, I remember that Jesus also has the power to raise the dead. This is why Paul can utter these words in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Probably the greatest rhetorical question ever asked. The sting of death now is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus not only utters the affirmation that he is the resurrection, he goes on to say, also in verse 25, that I am the life. I am the resurrection and I am the life. That is to say, God alone is the giver of life. God alone, as Acts 3.15 tells us, is the author of life. We learned in John 1, many, many weeks ago, in Him, that is, in Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. Now I have... Looked throughout the New Testament to see what, what did Jesus mean when he said to Martha, I am the life, and we see throughout the scripture that this life is a full life. This life is a, an abundant life, as Jesus said in John 10, verse 10. He, you remember he said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give them what? Life. I am the life. I come to give them life and life that is abundant life. We learn in Romans six that this life is a victorious life Romans five teaches that this life is filled with with peace and filled with joy in John chapter four, if you would turn there with me to review in John chapter four verses 13 and 14 we learn that this life is satisfying it's satisfying Jesus said in John 4:13 To the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks of this water, that is the water before them, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. Here's what Jesus was trying to indicate to the Samaritan woman. And I'll put it in 21st century language. You can have all the toys you want you can have the, the latest greatest technology. you can have the best computer. you can have the best devices. you can have the uh, uh, amazing relationships. You can have an amazing career. You can have all these things gathered into one. You can You can have the world, but those things never in the final analysis satisfy. He says that Jesus Christ is the only one that you can drink to your heart's content, and the satisfaction never ends. BJ read it earlier from Psalm chapter 34 Delight yourself in the Lord, and what? He will give you the desires of your hearts. And what is the desire of your heart? Augustine told us this O oh Lord, O oh Lord, you have created us for yourself, and our hearts are. Restless until we find our rest in Thee. This life is an eternally satisfying life. This life, as John chapter 5, verse 24 tells us, is a life that is actually immortal and eternal. Jesus puts it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Well, those are the two affirmations that Jesus makes in, in one statement to Martha. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Now notice as he continues to unpack this hope, he unpacks this hope in two promises in verses 25 and 26. And I want you to note a couple things about this promise, these promises, both promises, promises that we'll look at are actually saying the same thing. He's he's turning these statements to help Martha understand the same reality from different angles. The first promise you see is what you might call positive, and the second is negative. But in the final analysis, they're both positive promises. Look at them with me. In verse 25, promise number one, whoever believes In me, though he die, yet shall he live. And here we come back to a word that we have looked at over and over and over again. It's the Greek word translated believe, pistuo, And it means that whoever banks all his or her hope exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ and his completed work on the cross, that person shall receive eternal life. Now I limited my study for time's sake to the gospel of John. I want you to see what John says in a few places as the word is also used repeatedly. John 3.15. We all know John 3.16, right? How come no one memorizes John 3.15? That Whosoever believes in him may have eternal life John three hundred sixteen for God so loved the world that He gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me encourage you when you think about john three hundred sixteen let 's just do this for fun. How many of you would be honest and admit you can raise your hand on this one it 's a, it's a quiz. You have uttered the words, John three sixteen faster than the wings on a hummingbird. And you didn't even think about it. How many of you have ever done that? I'm the only one. Good. Oh, thank you, Frank. Anyone else besides Frank and me? Oh, thank you, Nico. For God so loved the world. Right? Let's slow down and remember. What is the amazing reality here that God so loved the world? That he sent his one and only son. That whoever would believe, whoever would turn to him, whoever would repent of their sin would have eternal life. That they would not perish and have eternal life. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.47, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John 8.12, Jesus said again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we see that to believe Jesus... In all reality is to come to Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to trust Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to obey Jesus. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Jesus says, yet shall he live. And so the life that Jesus describes to Martha... The life that Jesus describes to each of us today is eternal life. And that life that Jesus describes actually begins now. It begins now and extends unto all eternity. To have eternal life is to know the God of the universe personally and to be in right relationship with him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll be many, many, many weeks Let me retract that. It'll be many months before we get to John chapter 17. But I love the words in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But we've seen the first promise. Now look at the second promise. Jesus says, he he turns this statement just a bit. He says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And so you see, he turns the promise around. He not only promises eternal life to those who trust in him, he promises that they will never die. And so these promises are just uh, uh, seen from different angles. They're seen from different angles. One writer puts it this way, believers may die in a sense, that they pass through the door that we call physical death, but they will not die in a fuller sense. Death for them is but the gateway to further life and fellowship with God. This morning it struck me as I was reviewing my notes for this morning that this is actually one of the final lessons that John Bunyan teaches in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. For he learned, he teaches this lesson that in order to live, we must first die. In the story at the end of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian comes to the place where he he can see the celestial city, but in front of the celestial city, those of you that have read it remember this is a raging river, and he he learns that he has to go into the river and die in order for him to. Spend all eternity in the celestial city. And so Bunyan teaches a very important lesson for believers. And so, what we believe, you see, carries a great deal of weight. What I hear swirling around in our culture is it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus, for instance, as long as you're sincere. I would argue with the scriptures and the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ that what we believe about the Lord Jesus has eternal implications. And so Jesus offers hope for sinners who are lost in spiritual darkness. Jesus offers hope for everyone who stands in the shadow of death. This last week, I I read an absolutely amazing story. I I wish I could get into it. I shared a little bit of the story with my wife last night. If you're interested, I'll tell you more later. But this story relays an instance where an older woman died without the Lord Jesus Christ. The woman heard the gospel. The author of the book shared the gospel with this woman. And the woman stubbornly refused to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. At her funeral, as you might expect, her friends told stories that celebrated her life. It was an encouraging time for many of the people there. Yet, this Christ follower, this pastor, who had the opportunity to attend the service, made this note. There was no gospel. There was no cross. There was no reconciliation. There was no redemption. There was no hope. And so each person is forced to stand In the shadow of death, Jesus offers hope to such a person. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If you trust in him and his completed work on the cross, he promises to give you eternal life. Oh, Christian, my friends who are Christ followers, remember this. If you have trusted in Christ, you will never die. Oh, follower of Christ, I urge you, I plead with you to never become bored at hearing the gospel. I've heard on numerous occasions, we just keep kind of hearing the same thing over and over again. That's the gospel. I urge you, I plead with you, if you're to the point where you say, I'm just tired of hearing the gospel. Something needs to be adjusted deep down in your soul. I can never d- grow tired or weary of hearing the gospel or proclaiming the gospel. It is the most important message in the universe For those who have yet to turn to christ and many of you know that my my worldview my my philosophy of teaching and preaching is the philosophy and the ideology of the New England Puritans. And the Puritans believed that there was always someone in the congregation who was unconverted. It might be one person. It might be a dozen people. It might be half of you. But I always assume that there's someone in the church service who has yet to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you'll hear it again and again and again. I urge you to believe, which is to say I urge you to come to the cross, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn from your sins and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. Jesus offers hope for each one of us who stands in in the shadow of death, in the here and now. ...and also for all eternity. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't only offer hope. I want you to see, second of all... I want you to see that... ...the heart of God really emerges in this story. I want you to see not only the hope for sinners... ...I want you to see the heart of the Savior. And there are three aspects of Jesus' heart... ...that emerge in this passage. Before we get there, however something popped into my mind that I think would be worth explaining. Because we have in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith and the 1647 Westminster Confession of Faith that kind of covered the ground for the Baptists and the Presbyterians, we have a statement that reads as follows, and it's identical in both confessions. The Lord our God is without passions. Now, for many of you, this will be a new statement. You have not heard it. You're not familiar with it. Others of you, especially if you were raised in the Reformed tradition, you'll say, oh, yeah, here we go. The so-called impassibility of God. That's the label that... The Reformed community has placed on this doctrine that God is without passions. Now, the framers of the Confession of Faith, both the Baptist Confession and the Presbyterian Confession, refer to this as impassibility, as I've noted. Some, you see, have accused the Confession of affirming, and I have heard this from the lips of many people, they affirm that God has, as a result, no emotion, no joy. No pain, no suffering. After all, I am a confessional Christian. I believe in the impassibility of God. Derek Thomas, a good Reformed writer, a man I greatly respect, says this. Rather, what the writers of the confession are saying is that no one or no thing may impose suffering, pain, or any sort of distress on God in such a manner that God experiences such things unwillingly. And so you see that the doctrine before us in these confessions of faith, the doctrine of impassibility guards God's transcendence and God's sovereignty. I think you will see that a great deal of emotion surfaces here in John chapter 11 as Jesus himself stands in the shadow of death with both Martha and Mary. Now we move forward in the story where Jesus began this conversation, this dialogue with Martha. Now, as you remember in the scripture reading, Martha tells her sister, Mary, sis, Jesus is asking for you. Go find him. And so In the same manner that Martha went quickly to find the Savior, now Mary follows suit. She goes to find Jesus, and what does she say to the Son of Man? Hmm. Jesus, if you would have only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. How does Jesus respond? Once again, he responds in an absolutely amazing way here's jesus in the shadow of death first of all i want you to see in verse 33 that jesus is deeply moved when jesus saw her weeping and the jews who had come with her were also weeping can you imagine the sight he was deeply moved in his spirit the word deeply moved comes from a greek word that can be translated to have an intense feeling of concern The specific response, the identical response, is also found, and we'll see this next week, in verse 38. Notice it with me. Then Jesus deeply moved again. He hasn't even, in our passage, come to the tomb yet. In verse 38, we'll see Jesus actually standing in the shadow of death. And it says that he was deeply moved. For all of you who have received that call at 3 o'clock in the morning, you understand what it means to be deeply moved. It was about a year ago. The doorbell rang at 3 o'clock in the morning. Scott, you'll love this. What do, you, what do you think when the doorbell rings at 3 in the morning? You make your way to the door. Open the door. First of all, you want to make sure it's someone you can trust. And obviously, it was an officer in his uniform, and I opened the door, and I braced myself to be deeply moved. And he said, Sir, I just wanted to let you know that your garage door is open. That was the day I was not deeply moved. (laughs) But if you are one who has received the call, if you are one who has received a knock at the door and talked to a police officer, you understand what it's like to be deeply moved. For those of you who watched the towers fall not too many years ago on 9-11, you remember what it's like to be deeply moved. When you see the footage on television of something like Hurricane Katrina or the tsunami in Japan not too many years ago, you understand what it means to be deeply moved. When the Lord Jesus Christ witnessed the tears of Mary and the anguish of the Jews who loved Lazarus, who grieved at his death, what happens? The Savior is deeply moved. Notice what also happens in verse 33. We see a second aspect of the heart of Jesus. Verse 33 says that he was not only deeply moved in his spirit, but he was greatly troubled. The word means to stir up or cause distress. It means to be Agitated on the inside. This word troubled is seen in a few places in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 37, we see that Jesus is not only sorrowful, but he is troubled. We will see in several months from now, in John chapter 12, that now my soul is troubled as Jesus comes closer and closer to the foot of the cross. In John 13, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and he said, one of you will betray me. And so you see this inner anguish in the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus witnesses once again the tears of Mary and the anguish of the Jews who loved their friends so much and grieved his death, the Savior was troubled If that's not enough for you to find Jesus deeply moved and troubled, notice what also happens in verse 35. In verse 35, we get to the the heart of God as we see that Jesus, the God-man, wept. The Greek term means to have tears well up in your eyes. As the God-man stood in the shadow of death, he was so moved... He was so troubled in his spirit that he actually wept. I want to encourage young people at this point to do something, and really, all of us. I remember as a young boy hearing that famous moniker: "The shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept." Would could we do this collectively? Would you just remove that out of your brains? Because does it matter? that it's the shortest verse in the Bible. What that is, is Bible trivia. Who cares, right? What we're concerned about is not the shortest verse in the Bible. What we're concerned about is that the God who created all things, the God who controls all things, the God who is Lord of heaven and Lord of earth, this God wept. This God wept and here I believe Jesus reveals at a very deep level the heart of God. I want to ask what are the implications? What are the implications of a savior who is deeply moved and troubled and who weeps as he stands in the shadow of death? I want to close by offering five points of application that I trust is some of you are, especially young people, are standing literally in the shadow of death. And the rest of us will one day stand in the shadow of death. Notice first, this is a Savior who is not aloof. You say, what, what does that mean? This is a Savior who is not aloof. That is to say, our Savior is not some kind of a, a distant deity who cannot empathize with our pain or doubt, or loneliness, or fear, or despondency, or anxiety. I have talked to several people over the last month. I've talked to several people who confess they struggle with fear and anxiety. Remember this. We worship a Savior who is not aloof. He understands your anxiety. You say, how can He understand? He's God. You remember? He's the God Man, and the God man has been there. He has stood where we are standing now. Jesus stood in the shadow of death. He is not a savior who is aloof. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Number two. I want you to see this is a savior who is deeply moved and involved in the everyday everyday aspects of our lives. Jesus is a savior who walks with his people in the valley of the shadow of death. He not only walks with us, he promises to strengthen us by the power of his spirit. He whispers in our ears, "Wait for the Lord. Be strong." and let your heart take courage wait for the lord psalm 27:14 the savior tells us in his word do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to god and the peace of god which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You recall from last week, that word to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, Kirk and Kyle, baseball players, means to umpire. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Number three, I want you to see, this is a Savior who loves up close. This is a Savior who loves up close. Isaiah forty eleven says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. You see, there aren't any other world religions that can conceive of such a Savior. One of the fastest growing world religions right now is... Islam. Islam cannot fathom a personal savior. A Muslim cannot even dream of having a personal relationship with the sovereign one of the universe. There is a well known evangelical leader who recently said that the God of the Old Testament is the same God that the Muslims worship. Where do people come up with this stuff? Listen, the God of the Old Testament is not the same God our our Islamic friends worship. Who is the Islamic God? He is not Yahweh. He is a false God. I said to my wife yesterday, I say some things that could get me in trouble. Allah is a false God. And so as you're building relationships with your Muslim friends, remind them as you share a a cup of good Turkish coffee with them. Remind them that they can know the God of the universe personally. Why? Because the Savior loves up close. He loves to gather the lambs in his arms as a shepherd gathers his flock in his arms. Number four, I want you to see that this is a Savior who finds great delight in shepherding his flock. And will you turn with me to Psalm chapter 23? Some of you have it memorized and you can read along in your own mind. But I want you to see this verse once again as we looked at it a few weeks ago with a different perspective as we see that our savior finds great delight in shepherding his flock the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters he restores my soul why does he restore my soul Because my soul needs to be restored. When I stand in the shadow of death, Jesus, my shepherd, my savior, my Lord, my God, restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For me? No. For him. For his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. I imagine David penning those words and knowing he was coming to the end of that particular unit of thought, just ready to explode with excitement, knowing that his shepherd would be with him for all eternity. Number five, I want you to see that this is a Savior who has the power and authority over sin and death Randy Alcorn has recently stated that God isn't the author of evil. And would you mark that in the back of your minds that we are developing together Christianly? That God is not the author of evil, but he is the author of a story that includes evil. In his sovereignty, he intended from the beginning to permit evil, then to turn evil on its head and use it for redemptive good. Indeed, this is at the very core of the gospel that Jesus Christ will one day finally vanquish sin and death and evil as he returns as our victorious coming king. Revelation 21 5 says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is for every young person who has lost a dear friend. That is for me who lost my dear friend. That is for every person with cancer. That is for every Christ follower who is struggling with the mundane things of life. He makes all things new. And so the truth point today, Jesus offers hope for sinners and he reveals the heart of God In the shadow of death. As we close this morning, I want you to see in this passage something that emerged kind of at the end of my study, something that just kind of jumped out at me, and that is everyone has faith. Everyone in this story and every other story in the Word of God has faith. Richard Dawkins has faith, it's not in Jesus. But he has faith. And so the question today is, what or whom is the object of your faith? It's what I like to call the faith continuum. And I see the faith continuum in this story. The first I see is a struggling faith. I see a struggling faith in Mary and Martha who, who run to meet Jesus and say, if you had only been here, he wouldn't have died. Doesn't Jesus respond with such mercy and grace? Can you imagine if, if you were in that scenario, what you would have said? I know what I would have said. It probably wouldn't have been very merciful. These are women who had struggling faith, yet they had faith. Faith. They had, as Galatians 2.20 says, faith in the Son of God who would soon give His life for them. They had saving faith. But like you and I, we're like the man in the book of Mark. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I have faith, but I struggle. How many of you can say you have a faith that is a struggling faith, but it is nonetheless faith? It's heading to the celestial city. But then there is another kind of a faith. Another kind of a faith that is not a struggling faith. It is a stubborn unbelief. This person still believes in something, but it's not Jesus. We see the Jews in this story and many of the other stories who wrestle with unbelief. They resist Jesus. They oppose Jesus. They reject Jesus. And at the end of the day, what do they do? They cook up a plan to murder the Lord Jesus Christ. This leads to our final question. Where do you stand today on the faith continuum? I hope that you are on the left side. That you have a faith that may struggle from time to time, always needing strength and help and mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ, rather than a person who has stubborn unbelief. And that bears the marks of a person who has never yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was an Irish woman, a young Irish woman, who wrote a song. It's one of my favorites, and we're going to sing it here in a moment. I want to read the lines from the second verse. She writes these words, when, J- when Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him who pardoned me. This morning, if you're standing in the shadow of death, remember that Jesus offers hope for you, and He reveals the very heart of God as each of us stand in the shadow of death. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, revealing so many things in this story for us. I thank you for sending your Son to be the final payment for our sin. Lord Jesus, you are so gracious and so merciful in this story when Mary and Martha say, Lord, if you would have only been here, these horrible things would not have transpired, namely the death of our brother Lazarus. We thank you for your response. We thank you for offering hope to the sisters. We thank you that you uh, revealed uh, God at a very deep level, the very heart of God as you uh, were in deep distress and troubled and even wept at the prospect of of losing uh, your friend, Lazarus. We look forward to next week when you will perform an absolutely astonishing miracle. I pray today that by the power of your spirit that you would minister to our friends as they grieve the loss of a loved one. I pray for others who may be grieving and may have uh, unspoken requests that they have not yet revealed to someone. A uh, family member is sick. Uh, Loved one has uh, gone to be with with their Savior. God, we pray that you would minister peace and love and encouragement in this place today. We want to thank you uh, for the power of the gospel. Thank you for the peace that it brings us. Thank you that you have promised that we will never die, that we will be uh, bearers of eternal life all because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and because of his great resurrection. Amen.